Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, February 24th, 2015. All right. It's one of those days where I feel like I'm trying to catch up, multitasking, and I'm not good at it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And, well, sadly, there's no shortage of bizarre, crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to slow down and stop and open up our Bible. Now, um... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So let's just put it this way. <clears throat> Trying to figure out how to kind of ease into the theme here today. Um, okay, so um, here's the idea. Some of the stuff that we're going to hear today is... <laughs> it's not even close to exegesis. It's it's like there's a problem. And uh, the problem is, is that, well, some people clearly are not capable of reading English sentences. I just... I know it's that sounds insulting, but uh, what we're going to do to start off today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, in fact, I, I'm kind of looking at my time and looking at the segments that we uh, are going to be covering here, we're going to be doing another Amanda Wells segment. Again, I put her into the general category of the Patricia King gang, and oh, and by the way, I have been getting the emails from people suggesting new names for the Patricia King gang, have not zeroed in on a particular one yet. The uh, the nominations keep pouring in. And uh, and so uh, I'm still entertaining <clears throat> potential new names, a new name for the Patricia King gang, because it's really expanded beyond Patricia King. I put Amanda Wells into that category, although I don't think she has any formal connection with Patricia King. But I'm sure if I introduce the two of them to each other, they would get along smashingly. And <laughs> so we're going to be li- listening to Amanda Wells, and I, you know, I, I almost have to tell you what it is that we're going to be hearing. Uh, we're going to be listening to her from her masterclass financial seminar <laughs> found on YouTube. <laughs> Just the absurdity of this. Okay, the, the the lady is a spiritual wingnut. And in fact, wingnuts are sending me emails complaining about the fact that I'm comparing her to them. Anyway, so, <laughs> so 
So we're going to be hearing her, and it, it'll take us a few minutes to get there, because she's kind of a fast talker, but she rambles so long and doesn't make a point. And that's one of the things I've noticed uh, lately about a lot of these false teachers, is words come out of their mouth. Words, that lots and lots of words, rapid fire, machine gun, you know, rattling kind of words, but they don't make any sense. But she's literally, you know that passage where Jesus says, you know, um, you cannot serve God and money where your heart where your your heart is there your treasure will be also yeah you're familiar with the text I mean I'm kind of doing this from memory here but no joke you're going to hear Amanda Wells say that that means <laughs> that um, God wants us to be wealthy because if our if our uh, you know where our heart is you know you know you know our treasure is there our heart you know whatever that the money is something that we need to have because you know that shows that we have a heart for God I mean that's how she twists this text and uh, you know and you're thinking no one is that dense when it comes to just being able to read sentences. And if you were thinking that, and you know that's your first defense, that just there's no way that anybody could possibly twist that text that way. I, I, I hate to disappoint you, but Amanda Wells will be doing that, and you will be hearing it. So, um, and then we're going to switch gears altogether. And it has been a while since we've done a Perry Stone update, and uh, and part of the reason why is because the latest episodes of his um, television program have been well. How shall I say it? Boring. Anyway, at least I, I I found nothing theologically compelling about them or even worth passing along. But we're going to be listening to a portion of the February-March uh, 2015 Stone Report. And um, and we're going to be listening to him. How should we put this um, delicately? Shilling, um, you know, huck, you know, basically hawking his wares, if you would, selling stuff. And when you listen to what these things are that he's selling, you would you just want to beat your head against your desk, going, "What is it that that Christians who call themselves Christians, who actually are supposed to be reading their Bibles, Christians?" are seeing in this man's teaching. It's absolutely bizarre. Then we'll, you know, somewhere in there we'll take a break. And then when we come back from the break, or, you know, it might be before this, we're going, you've heard of the four blood moons, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, aren't we coming up on another blood moon in like a month or so? I mean, again, I, I'm seriously considering, you know, seriously considering at the end of all of this, you know, at the end of the fourth blood moon, um, selling T-shirts that say, I survived the four blood moons and all I got was this lousy T-shirt. Anyway, I, I'm seriously considering it. Um, but, <laughs> you know, I, I make memes to, to that effect, you know, with each blood moon that passes. But, okay, so you got the four blood moons. Have you heard of the seven Shemitahs? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, we're going to be listening to um, Jim Baker mm -hmm. and Zach Drew of the Jim Baker Show talking about the seven Shemitahs. And it's literally just one of the most bizarre things. Yeah, huge. And, and he really is buying into this whole Rabbi Jonathan Kahn Shemitah doctrine thingy, as if somehow the United States of America has entered into the Mosaic Covenant and is now subject to the Shemitah and the Year of Jubilee. Yeah, no joke. But you know, there's something that happens in this... Uh, talking about the so-called seven Shemitahs, where we could play that little um, game from Sesame Street. You know, one of these things is not like the other. Yeah, which kind of blows the whole thing apart, but uh, we'll do that. And if we have time, 
It depends on if we have time today or not. Uh, 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 Benny Hinn mm -hmm, recently appeared on Sid Roth's It's Supernatural. And, I mean, this when you have two... <laughs> Two heretics of this magnitude on the same, you know, shot from a video camera. Um, you know, well, it's possible that a black hole could open up and the universe could literally be torn apart. So, uh, you know, we, I do need to warn you there's a black hole warning um, you know, with that. But we may not be able to get to it today. And then in hour number two, we're going to head down to the Summit Church and we're going to listen to a sermon about being fearless. Fearless. Did, did you know that that's one of the gifts of the Spirit? Mm -hmm. One of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, fearlessness, and self-control. Um, yeah, it doesn't really belong in the list. But uh, So that's what we're going to be uh, doing on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And yeah, this Amanda Wells person, I told you she's probably going to be making regular appearances here at Fighting for the Faith. Regular appearances here um she is that far out there um and it's wow and the weird thing is is that she's quite growing in her celebrity down in australia new zealand which i don't get at all but uh, i i do have to play our warning so here here we go Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinew nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. You have been warned. So, you know, if you're looking, you know, for financial advice and, you know, are looking for a reputable seminar that, you know, that you can watch in, in order to learn how to properly manage your finances and things like that, where's the first place that you would go? Well, if you haven't considered going to Amanda Wells' YouTube channel and uh, taking her Masterclass Financial Seminar, well, this, <laughs> this video that we're about to play audio from will convince you that this is the absolute wrong place that anybody should go for financial advice, yet alone spiritual advice. Here's um, Amanda Wells to explain. And to avoid failure. And often we've got to be so careful because what we do is we, we actually program our children to avoid failure rather than programming them to just have success. And this programming actually controls how we react to, to so many numerous situations each and every day. And the way we react to situations actually reveals what our programming is. I have no idea what she's talking about. So the way we react to situations is going to reveal what our programming is. This is all part of her master class financial seminar online. Uh, that's right. Part four, by the way. Have you ever seen anyone who, who gets really defensive? Um, for instance, you say, oh, can you go and get my, my handbag off the chair? Why? That's defensive. I didn't ask you why. I just asked you if you could get my handbag off the chair, please. It could be laziness. 
You see, what happens is they are not able with a prosperous soul to logically be able to work out the concept of why I would want my handbag. <laughs> why do I feel like you're talking about your husband? Okay, so let's let's fill in the blanks here. Okay, so she asked her husband, husband, would you get me my handbag? And he said, why? And so her response is, how could you not logically figure this out with your prosperous soul? Oh, yeah, there's not going to be any problems with that relationship whatsoever. Right away, they think something in that handbag. I've got to, I've got to straight away be defensive and protect myself in case. And I don't know whether you've ever met anyone like that, but it can be awfully annoying. And it's defensive. Please tell us more about what you think is annoying. Talk about a pro positive soul, a prosperous soul. 3 John 2. Go with your Bibles there. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health even as your soul prospers. Yeah, that's kind of a proof text that um, <clears throat> prosperity heretics go to. And uh, let's take a look at that one. Let's take a look at that because you're going to notice a few things as we uh, take a look at that passage. And the idea here is, is that that's, you know, you don't like when you write a letter. I know people don't do this very often anymore. We write emails and things like that. But if you ever took the time you know, to write a letter, you know, there's a, there's a opening, you know, dear so-and-so, and then there's kind of a greeting oftentimes, you know, I hope things are going well with you. And, you know, kind of like the, uh, the small talk, you know, uh, you know, before you launch into the body of the letter, that's exactly what's going on here in third John. And I'm going to read it from the, um, ESV for the very specific reason that the translation that she's using in order, and, and then taking this passage out of context is, well, this is what false teachers do. They take passages out of context, and oftentimes they'll use a translation or a paraphrase where the language fits what they're trying to teach uh, rather than actually what God's Word says. So let's put it in context. Let's put it in context. So a third John, <clears throat> chapter, uh, verse 1. There's only one chapter in third John. It's a very short little letter, good one, by the way. Here's what it says. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth, beloved... I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So you'll notice there that when I read it in context, you know, you can see that this is the opening. This is the greeting here. It's not some kind of promise that, hey, you know, I, I, you know, I, the Apostle John, am saying that you are going to have prosperity and health. No, it's just I'm wishing you well is a good way to kind of paraphrase that. So, um, yeah, let's read a little bit more, by the way. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for those brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth." Mm -hmm. I have written something to the church, but Diostrophes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and, and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Yeah, 
<clears throat> you'll notice there were problems back in the church all the way at the beginning. So anyway, so you kind of get the idea that opening there is not some promise that we're, oh, you're so, oh, God is saying here in the third John verse two, uh, he wants us that the, we all are going to be prosperous. We all are going to be healthy and wealthy. No, because no, who's the letter written to? Oh, yeah, it's to the elder, the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. This is a we're actually reading somebody else's mail. You would. So, um, and beloved, I pray that it may go well with you and that, you know, maybe in good health as it goes well with your soul. It's just a, it's just a polite way of saying, I hope things are going okay. But no, Amanda Wells sees this as something completely different because she has no clue how to rightly handle a biblical text. Is your memory verse for this week. I want you to write it somewhere, put it on a mirror where you put your makeup on or shave your face and say that every day. Because when we actually talk about prosperity, it isn't, as I said, just about making money. Instead, it's learning to operate from a wealthy soul or a prosperous soul. As oh, yeah. So, yeah, you got to learn how to operate from a, from a wealthy soul. Yeah. That's not what that text is saying, Amanda spoke about that will begin by being internally healthy and soon you start to bear fruit supernaturally on the outside because as soon as your your soul is prosperous as soon as your soul is wealthy and I don't mean that you've got dollar signs in your soul you're like ka-ching ka-ching every time you wake up in the morning ka-ching I'm not talking about that I'm talking about a wealthy soul yeah she's not talking about dollar signs she's talking about a wealthy soul yeah, you know, because I have no idea what she's talking about. Soul that is full of health, a soul that thinks of the best, you will start manifesting fruit, supernatural fruit on the outside. But mm-hmm. So as soon as you have a prosperous, wealthy soul, you're going to start manifesting fruit. Mm-hmm. Bananas will start growing out of your ears or something. Soul is not prosperous. It's not abundant. It's not wealthy. Then you can you can't invest. You can't create business, etc. And you will never find financial freedom. Our soul is the place. With- so you can never find financial freedom unless you have a wealthy soul. It makes you wonder how do the pagans pull it off? I mean, you know, Tiger Woods. I mean. Even though he lost so much of his estate, well, due to that, <clears throat> you know, those affairs. But, uh, you know, he's still a wealthy dude, you know. Um, in fact, he was long, wealthy long, you know, for a long time, and he's still wealthy. And uh, he embraces Buddhist spirituality, Buddhism, you know. How, so how is it that he is so financially well off if he can't, by you know, by a biblical way of looking at things, he doesn't have a prosperous soul if he's not a penitent believer in Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins. I mean, weird, you know? Where our mind, our will, our emotions, our conscience are seated. And so therefore, as just like my bones, my, my stomach, my brain, my heart, everything about me needs food. It needs sustenance every day. So does your soul. Uh, it must be nourished. It's got to be strengthened. And, and you are the only one that can do that. You have to learn. You have to read. You have to have mentoring. You have to be coached. You have to have revelation knowledge. And that comes through prayer. And the dictionary describes prosperous as this in material terms. So now we're going with the dictionary definition of prosperous. 
flourishing financially, bringing wealth, success, to succeed in an enterprise or activity, to achieve economic success and to become strong and lucrative and to progress. And although God's will is for his people to prosper, it still is totally dependent on the state of your soul. Mm, yeah, so you, you, you can't be prosperous unless the state of your soul is, you know, right. So the first thing we have to do before we learn about how to build properties, before we learn about investing. Uh, so before we learn how to build properties and invest, which I'm sure she's, you know, you know an expert at got to secure your soul and make sure it's in a wealthy and abundant prosperous place uh, so secure your soul in a wealth wealthy and prosperous place yeah because you know this is somewhere in Jesus's teaching in the um which gospel is that in no it's not I, it's not in any of the gospels weird Jesus didn't say this you see he he wants you to prosper mentally physically emotionally spiritually and financially because you cannot you cannot uh, even prosper financially if your soul is not healthy mm. again i kind of ask the question how does tiger woods pull it off you know you know I, I think of all the wealthy millionaires and billionaires i mean george soros i mean that guy doesn't kind of strike me as a guy who was an you know embracing biblical Christianity, and yet he is like uber wealthy. How did he do it? To the extent that your soul prospers will be the magnitude and the scope to which you physically and financially prosper. Uh huh. You're right. Yeah. Remember. God's plan for you is stated in Jeremiah 29, verse 11. No, it's not. There we go again. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. From time to time, we have to go through this. Um, I apologize for the redundancy, but there just seems to be, well, a plethora. Yeah, that's right. That's a word I stole from a movie once. A plethora of people out there saying that Jeremiah 29.11 is, well, something that is a promise for us today. You know, Jeremiah 29.11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Oh, yeah, plans for you know, for deliverance plans, oh, you know, to to bring you to a prosperity and abundance. Yeah, you, you get the point. Plans for a future and a hope and all that kind of stuff, right? See, the problem is, is that Jeremiah 29, 11, as soon as you put the text in, you know, context, you realize that this is not some blanket promise that God's speaking to the world or to Christians, no, this was actually written, from, you know, you know, by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah dictated, you know, God dictated this to Jeremiah, and it was written to a very specific group of people. Yeah, um, let me read the context. Um, Jeremiah twenty nine. We'll start at verse one. Here's what it says. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah, the prophet, sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you would just read Jeremiah 29 in context, um, when you get to verse 11, you'll realize you're reading somebody else's mail. Mm -hmm. 
so we can fast forward a little bit. Uh, Verse 4, this is the letter. Here's what it says. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Mm -hmm. So this is a letter from God to those exiles whom God sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. Any of you uh, part of that group? If you are, raise your hand. I'm not seeing any hands here. No one's that old. Okay. So uh, here's what God says. He says, I want you to build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city that I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf and for its welfare, and for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. It's as if... Amanda Wells is related to these people. But anyway, uh, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you. So, yeah, Jeremiah 29, 11 is similar to, if you would, the uh, the verse that we read in um in third john verse 2 um it's you're reading somebody else's mail and so this is one of the reasons why the three primary rules for sound biblical exegesis are context 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 but see here amanda wells not paying attention to the context is finding little sentences out of context and then creating a theology from them that is not a biblical theology let's continue another one Put it on your mirror where you shave or put your makeup on. For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. He desires to fulfill your potential for you to attain all of your dreams and desires. Yeah, so God's all about fulfilling your dreams and desires. All because she read Jeremiah 29 11 out of context. Weird, huh? So now we're going to go on with riches and prosperity. Okay. When riches are obtained without God, what happens is it usually leads to oppression and mastery by mammon. Do you know Jesus spoke a lot? Okay, so if you you acquire riches without God, it'll lead to uh, you being mastered by mammon. Okay. Mammon. And unfortunately, in church circles, we've, we've said, oh, I don't want to have money. I just want God. You can't have God without money. Uh, what? <laughs> yeah, this is the part that I played the warning regarding. To, we're, we're now into that part of the video. Brace yourselves. So you can't have God without money. Please do tell us more, Amanda. Do you realize that? I have pastors who have said to me, Amanda, don't you speak on money. But where your your money is, that's where your heart is. So if you are not talking about money, if you're not talking about finances, your heart is not with God. (laughs) 
No. <laughs> wow. Um. <laughs> Holy smokes. Um. Yeah. Um. If you would. <clears throat> All you need is your Bible and, uh, you know, maybe something to um, look up the word like treasure. The, the, the passage that she's actually referencing and very badly is Matthew chapter 6, particularly verse 19. But we're going to, oh man, we're going to have to put this in context a little bit. Um, so, yeah, well, actually, I'll read starting at verse 16. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 and move forward. Here's what it says. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others and that your father who is in secret uh, can see and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now you'll notice the text itself makes it very clear that we're not to lay up for ourselves treasures here on earth. Mm-hmm. Instead, we are to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, and where your heart is, your treasure will be also. In other words, if your treasure is in heaven, there your heart would you know your heart will be there. And if your treasure here is on is here on earth, then your well your heart will be there. But oh, you know, um, yeah, Amanda Wells in her master class financial seminar part four. Um, somewhat kind of references this text, but totally mangles it. Let me back it up just a little bit and let's re-listen to the mangling of this text. And unfortunately in church circles, we've, we've said, oh, I don't want to have money. I just want God. You can't have God without money. Do you realize that? I, I have pastors who have said to me, Amanda, don't you speak on money. But where your, your money is, that's where your heart is. So if you are not talking about money, if you're not talking about finances, your heart is not with God. Yeah, um, if you know anybody that believes that Amanda Wells is a, an anointed, Holy Spirit-filled uh, teacher of God's truth, uh, please be sure to send them this episode of Fighting for the Faith because this lady... Um, has serious problems with like basic reading comprehension when it comes to scripture, and she's not teaching the truth. She is literally scratching itching ears and filling people's heads with nonsense, and I mean literally nonsense, saying the exact opposite of the things that scripture says, making promises where the Bible makes no promises. So again, she's quite the growing phenomena down there in uh, Australia, New Zealand. So. We are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we have a Perry Stone update and a seven Shemitahs update. Yeah, seven whole Shemitahs. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. 
No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Circus Church would like to again apologize. Normally, we try to do parody here at Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, the church continues to just parody itself. Case in point, Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed shofar CD. This is a real commercial. When Rabbi Michael Zeitler blows the shofar, miracles take place. He wants to see God break every stronghold of the enemy in your life, healing you emotionally, physically, even in your relationships, bringing salvation to your entire household. Call now and receive both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, for a donation of $25. Shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Listen to this anointed audio CD. Allow God's glory to fill the room as Rabbi Zeitler shares from the scriptures and then blows the shofar over every issue you are facing, including mental and emotional disorders, confusion, fear, stress, grief, nightmares, insomnia, pain, sickness and disease, addictions, eating disorders, weight loss, injustices, persecution, finances, marriages, rebellious children, freedom from the occult and demonic oppression, and so much more. Through Rabbi Zeitler's brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, you will learn how you and your family can obtain supernatural protection in the midst of the end time judgments about to be unleashed on planet earth don't miss out on getting both rabbi michael zeitler's anointed audio cd sound of the shofar plus his brand new prophetic book why israel is supernatural for a donation of 25 dollars shipping and handling is included ask for offer number 9081 call or write today Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, the last place on earth you want to be getting your financial master coursing you know, information from is somebody who has a YouTube channel trying to tell you that God wants you to be prosperous. 
just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. I'm a nut. I'm a nut. My life don't ever get in a rut. The head on my shoulders is sort of loose, and I ain't got sense. God gave a goose. Lord, I ain't crazy. But I'm a nut. Is it wetter underwater if you're there when it rains? Is it shorter to New York than it is by plane? Between myself and I, I wonder who's the dumber. Is it hotter down south? Than it is in the summer. I'm a nut. I'm a nut. My life don't ever get in a rut. The head on my shoulders is sort of loose, and I ain't got since God gave a goose. Lord, I ain't crazy, but I'm a nut. That's right. Uh, Leroy Pollins, I'm a nut. That can mean only one thing. We're going to be doing a uh, Perry Stone update, and we're going to be listening to him, well, what I would call shilling or hawking his wares uh, from the March, February, February, March, uh, Perry Stone report for 2015. And when you hear the details of these products, again, the question that always seems to come to my mind is why is anybody who thinks that they are a, a Christian who believes Scripture Somebody who would listen to Perry Stone. The things he puts forward, well, they are bizarre and not really what God's Word says at all. Here's Perry Stone to uh, explain to us, you know, the, the this the offerings, you know, the the products that you can purchase from his ministry in the months of February and March. Here we go. Those great conferences. Several things I want to share with you very quickly, if you'll give me a moment. Our brand new offer is God's Controversy with the Covenant. This is Bill Cloud and I's book that we've just written. Uh, I want to say something. When the Supreme Court made the decision... The, the name on the title is America's Controversy with God's Covenant. Are you talking about the Mosaic Covenant or the New Covenant? the state of Alabama recently. This book could not be any more timely because we're going to show you the things that we're doing that's going to wreck this nation permanently and how we can change that as believers. The most important book I've ever written about America with Bill Cloud is this book right here. I'm I'm imploring you, please get it. If you don't order it, come to a conference where we are and be sure and get it. And also... Uh So we've got to to pay attention here because he's going to save America with um, these insights regarding America's controversy with God's covenant. Mm Mm-hmm. It is brand, this is brand new. I've not taught this before. In the shadow of the final beast, the ISIS factor in the kingdom of the Antichrist, we are really getting a lot of information from the Middle East about this group called ISIS, their plots, their plans, their strategies. Believe it or not, they line up exactly with what the book of Daniel and Revelation teaches about the Antichrist kingdom. And so, uh, so ISIS is uh, spreading the Antichrist kingdom. This is kind of like reading your Bible with... Uh, 
you know, one one eye on your Bible, the other eye, eye open to you know the New York Times or your your local paper as they give you international coverage. So he's identified ISIS with the uh, Antichrist Kingdom. I'm going to expose that and give you the details of some things that you may not know and put the prophecies together. Again, this is brand new. So please, this is the offer for this uh, month, for the next couple weeks. And if you, if, if, you, if you did not get the six important prophetic updates, the mystery of the great Sabbatismos, and here's the mystery of the great Sabbatismos. Really? Uh, Yom HaKissah, the mystery of the hidden day. Uh, second coming secrets revealed in the priestly rituals, the prophetic mystery of the... Second coming secrets revealed in the priestly rituals. Code living and prophetic crunch time, the spirit of Antichrist wearing down the saints. Get this, these are CDs. And I also want to mention, because this is becoming a great soul winning tool, it's stirring up the hearts of unbelievers and sinners alike. It's called the 12 gates to Satan's underworld. The, the 12 gates to Satan's underworld. And this is a, uh, an evangelistic tool? Evidence of a subterranean world of lost souls. Can the magnetic zones in the sea be 12 entrances to the underworld? Um, so the magnetic zones in the sea, <laughs> could there be gates to the underworld? <laughs> yeah, that's, you give that to a pagan, you know what they're going to do. They're going to like fall to their knees in repentant faith in Christ because they read about the possibility that there's 12 magnetic gates into the underworld. Really? have watched this who are don't care about church, not interested in the things of God. And after going through half of it, uh, some of them have called their wife and said, honey, pray for me, because if there's a hell, I'm headed there. And it's very convincing from a totally different perspective of understanding the subterranean worlds mentioned in the Bible and the scientific proof that they actually exist. So these are some materials that we hope you get. Now, let me just mention very quickly some other things. And that is every Tuesday night, don't forget that you can watch uh, OCI Live. We're having some great moves of God, we're averaging between 400 to uh, almost 600 people every Tuesday. It's growing every week. We all- yeah, and in fact, recently, I think, uh, you know, there at that uh, OC Ministry Center, they, you know, they had a replica arc and uh, people were dancing around it quite wildly. Um, yeah, so uh, that's the, uh, the latest uh, offerings from Harry Stone's ministry. So we've got uh, learning how ISIS is the uh, the kingdom of the Antichrist. And I would say they're definitely opposed to Christ. They are anti-Christian for sure and anti-Christ for sure. But, uh, you know, in the shadow of the final beast, you know, things are winding down because the final beast has sort of kind of showed up in ISIS. And then America's controversy with God's covenant. Yeah, we well, you know, apparently, you know, America just won't toe the line regarding the Mosaic covenant. So you can stop that, though, and you can save America by buying this book. And then, of course... (laughs) All those other things, including the the, uh, magnetic gates that lead into the underworld. Mm -hmm. And that's an evangelistic tool. You know, it'll it'll cause sinners to call their wife and say, I'm going to go to hell because I I saw that that, uh, Perry Stone did a thing where, you know, if uh, there's there's a possibility, there's 12 magnetic gates under the sea leading to the underworld. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, This has nothing to do with sound biblical doctrine or Christianity or anything of the sort. It's just absolute and utter nonsense. But uh, that seems to be uh, the the thing that he's selling and people are buying. And it's amazing how many people listen to and watch Perry Stone and think that uh, by doing so, they're hearing sound biblical doctrine when they're not. Moving along. 
got £90,000 in my Time for a money-grubbing televangelist update. French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira now. The Deutsche Mark's getting dearer and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money you can make a splash. Quite as wonderful as money. There's nothing like a newly minted pound. Everyone must anchor for the butchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round. You can keep your Marxist ways, but it's only just a phase. For it's money, 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 money makes the world go round. Money, 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 money. All right, that's uh, the Monty Python money song. And what we're going to be listening to is a portion of the Jim Baker television program. And uh, you've heard of Four Blood Moons. Well, apparently there's seven Shemitahs. And uh, you're going, what's a Shemitah? Well, a Shemitah is, well, the best way to put it, it's a, well, it's a year, if you would. It has to do with the Mosaic Covenant and uh, a year of rest, a year of release. And then when they those add up, then there's a year of jubilee that goes along with it. All of these are details and part of the Mosaic Covenant. Well, thanks to Rabbi Jonathan Kahn... <clears throat> Spelled C-O-N now, I think. Um, There's people out there uh, like Jim Baker selling products, telling people about, oh, the the coming financial collapse is going to happen on September 13th of 2015 because of the Shemitah and how America supposedly isn't fulfilling its covenant obligations to to recognize the, the Shemitah years. Yeah, and as we listen to this thing, we'll play that little Sesame Street game. One of these things is not like the other. Yeah, you'll, let's see if we can spot this thing as we go. Here's uh, Jim Baker and his wife to explain, and along with Zach Drew, to explain the seven Shemitahs. Here we go. We are in the end of a seven-year cycle of sevens. That, and that seven times seven is 49, if I remember correctly. And that makes it into the 49th, into the 50th year, which is the year of Jubilee. All right. Seven cycles ago was 1972-73. That's that, right. That cycle. That was a Shemitah cycle. And Shemitahs often deal with the economic side of a country or of a uh, Shemitahs have to do with the economy. Okay. So we got the 72, the year 72 uh, Shemitah. And in the first uh, of this first cycle in 1972, 1973, what happened during that Shemitah year? Mm. It was a crash and an economic recession. This, oh, that's just terrible. Wow. It, it's because of the Shemitah, man. Yeah, but see, here's the thing. The United States of America has not signed on to the Mosaic Covenant. So why would God be punishing America's economy for not recognizing the Shemitah years? Second one, seven years later, the second Shemitah, 1979 to 1980. What happened? We experienced a severe recession and unemployment at its highest level since the Great Depression. Yeah, the Carter administration. I remember that. And a Shemitah year. So that is desperate. What happens seven years later? Yes, the third one in 1986 and 1987, the greatest stock market percentage crash to date 
was up until that point, which was referred to as Black Monday, happened during oh, the Shemitah year. I remember year. that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, seven Shemitah. Who knew that this was tied to the Shemitah? It's not. Again, one of these things is not like the other. See if you can spot it. Then the fourth one, the Shemitah year of 1993-1994, something very interesting. Mm-hmm. 1993-94. Now, think back in your economic history. Now, by the way, thinking... I don't remember what was happening to the economy in 1993. Do you remember the great crash of 19? No, there was no crash in 1993. What happened economically in 1993? Things were actually going along at quite a pretty good clip there in 1993. In fact, the early 90s, that the, the, we were still pretty much riding the Reagan economy, the Reaganomics uh, boom, you know. Uh, Reagan's uh, financial policies really put this uh, country way, way up there. We were doing really well. So um, in 1993-94, the Shemitah year, did the United States experience an economic downturn? No, it didn't. So remember, one of these things is not like the other. So what are they going to point to as the thing that, oh, well, well, you know, there was this thing that happened during the Shemitah year. Here it is. Um, happened. They called the Shoemaker Levy, where this comet bashed Jupiter, went into 21 fragments. 21 is a multiple of seven. So there, uh-huh. so there wasn't an economic downturn in the Shemitah year of 93-94. No, the economy was going along at a great clip. No, the thing they're going to point to is, well, that's the year. You know, the Shoemaker-Levy 9 comet hit um, Jupiter, and there were 21 fragments. You know what that means, right? Yeah, does this sound like something that uh, William Tapley would be doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, William Tapley and Jim Baker and Rabbi Jonathan Kahn seem to be all cut from the same cloth. The difference is that uh, William Tapley just does not have any charismatic chops whatsoever. Look for the next three Shemitah cycles. Three is the number of completion. These are going to be very, very prophetic. So let's move on to the next one. The fifth Shemitah. Yeah, but it, here's Levi 9, judgment. 9 is nine judgment. judgment. The 21 fragments, as you said, 3 times 7 is 21. So there's three sevens. So we have three sevens left. Uh, but there was so much more. But let's go on. The fifth one now. The fifth one of 2000 and 2001. It's the bursting of the dot-com bubble. 49% of the... Uh, 2000, 2001, another Shemitah year. But you remember, nothing happened in 93, 94, except for a comic struck, comic struck Jupiter. Uh-huh. Yeah, you should be paying attention here. Were there any blood moons during this time? The stock market lost its value over one year. Now, this is very, very important. Yeah, that was the 9-11 attack, right? Yes. But that was when the, the, the stock market opened up mm-hmm. a few days after 9-11. That's right. And so on September 17th, which in the Jewish calendar is Elul, the month of Elul, 29, which is the very last day of the year. It was the very last day of the Shemitah year cycle. This is what happened. It was actually a 684-point drop crash, which was the largest up into... Of course, the question I keep asking is, why on earth would God supposedly hold the United States accountable for not recognizing the Shemitah years when the United States has not signed on to the Mosaic Covenant, and the Mosaic Covenant has literally um, been fulfilled and is done away with? It's passed away. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant. 
time. Then if you go seven years later to the year, to the month, to the week, to the day, to the minute later, in 2007, on 2008, on Elul 29, the climax of the Shemitah, the stock market collapsed. In a single day, it dropped 7%, dropping 777 points. And this happened on the climax of the Shemitah. So, my but it also, that was a Lul 29, right? Yes. That was so, also a Lul 29. That's the Jewish calendar date, people. That's God's dates. Those are the dates that don't change. So that is Elu 29. So now we've got one, two in a row of the Elu 29, which is, is a judgment day. It's a, it is a, it's a really an awesome day. So Elul 29, beware Elul 29, especially during a four-blood four moon cycle. Oh, man. And we're at the end of another Shemitah year coming up. Elul 29 is this year, and it's going to be when? It's a Shemitah year. And here we have the worst crash, two of them now, in history, one right after another, seven years apart to the day. So this Shemitah year... Is not something you can say, well, Rabbi just made this up. Or, you know, economists right. have been studying this and wondering why every seven years there's a crash. Except for 93, right? And so the, the, these two unbelievable crashes took place. All right, let's go on. Yes, and I just want to reiterate that point. How incredible is that? Secular economists mm -hmm. have studied the seven-year cycle. So... When is the next Elul 29, the last day? We're already in the Shemitah year. The last day, the climax of the Shemitah year is in 2015, and it's on September 13th. Now, it's yeah, get, pull your money out of the bank, folks. It's going to be a huge crash. The Shemitah is coming. The Shemitah is coming. September 13th, 2015, God's going to judge the United States for not recognizing the Shemitah. It'd be gone. Mm-hmm. It's right. It began the day the calf was born, <laughs> or the calf was born the day. Yeah, they're referring to apparently a so-called red heifer that was born, I think, in Missouri, that has you know a weird uh, mark on its head. It looks like a number seven, and you know they actually covered that at a different time. We didn't cover it here, at fighting for the faith. So, oh, that calf that was born on September twenty-fifth. Uh huh. Yeah, the Jewish New Year. You know, it, the, to to kick off the Shemitah year. That's a sign from God. You know, because it has a number seven on its head. Um, that oh, this is the year, folks. This is it. We're 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 in trouble. The economy's going to crash hard on September thirteenth, twenty fifteen, because of the Shemitah. The new, Jewish New Year and the Shemitah year began. Yes, but now the this this Shemitah year ends. On what date? On September 13th of 2015. 2015, which just also, I understand, is Elu 29. Yes. And so, and there's what? The exact date? The exact date of every crash for the last several crashes? The, the, and they're all on the Shemitah year, every one of them, every seven years for the last 50 years? Yeah, except for 93, 94, you know, the only thing you can point to is, oh, yeah, a, a comet struck Jupiter. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. So, um, folks, if you are uh, worried about the Shemitah year and, and thinking, oh, it's the end of the world, you know, the economy is going to crash because the United States isn't fulfilling its covenantal obligations to, you know, recognize the Shemitah, folks, the Mosaic Covenant has passed away. It's been fulfilled. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant. All of this stuff, this is just Jewish, Hebrew-ish heresies and nonsense, and they're fear-mongering and literally making a ton of money doing so. It's really, really you know, sad. But if you know anybody who's buying into the Shemitah snuff stuff, yeah, again, the Shemitah applied to the uh, the nation-state of Israel in biblical times. It was part of the Mosaic Covenant, and uh, and we are not obligated to keep a Shemitah. Yeah, yeah, and that's the right way to talk about it. Anyway, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition, the previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, going to head down to Summit Church and hear a sermon about being fearless. You know, you're probably sinning if you're not being fearless. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Quiet on set! Lights! Camera! Action! Cut! 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 We don't need lights. This is for radio. Fine. Strike the lights, people! Striking! Can we keep the camera? No. No camera. Oh. But can we at least have some action? Let me look at the budget. Yeah, we can have some action. All right, then. Places, everyone! Action! Now, what is it this time? Um, we're not actually doing a Max Holiday right now. We're not? Then what are we doing? Well, we're actually promoting Mac and Trio, Inc. What on earth is that? It's a brand new company dedicated to providing quality and wholesome entertainment for all ages. That sounds interesting. Actually, Mac and Trio, Inc. has already published three children's books that are available for purchase in both a digital and a hard copy format. And we even have a weekly online comic strip. Additionally, Mac and Trio Inc. is currently developing board games, card games, and even a children's television show. That sounds awesome! Where can I go to see all these great things? It's really simple. Just go to bit.ly forward slash Mac and Trio. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash M-A-C-K-I-N-T-R-I-O. That's a wrap, folks!
number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. the bad the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via the summit church in houston texas ross fiesel presiding the sermon we're going to be listening to is entitled forward in fearlessness let me read from the description of this sermon. The spirit of fear's purpose is to keep us from moving forward. Discover how the armor of God is the game changer that can help us move forward in fearlessness when battling fear. Yeah, this is guaranteed to be a train wreck. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is Ross Fiesel. And his sermon entitled, Forward in Fearlessness. Here we go. I'm so excited about today. Today's going to be great. We're going to have a lot of fun. And we are going to be continuing in our series on how to go forward in faith. And, and if this is your first time to this series, welcome. Just to let you know what we are doing is in this message for 2015 is we are eradicating the things that are holding us back. The things that are... Yeah, we're into things that are holding us back eradication. Yeah, what's holding you back? From what exactly? You know, what do you mean by holding me back? In our way that keep us from moving forward into this faith-filled life that God has for us. It's a mm, faith-filled life. Okay. So it's been an incredible message so far. Pastor Nate has talked to us about the things so far that have been in our way, things like sin, things like our flesh that hold us back. And then last week, an incredible message on unforgiveness and how unforgiveness is kind of like quicksand that you get yourself stuck into and it just keeps you from moving forward. And today, what I want to do is I want to talk about our worst nightmare. Today we're going to talk about a juggernaut that is in our path of moving forward in faith and into what God has called us to do. And the reason why today's subject is so awful is because it is something that has inflicted every single one of us since we were a baby. There's not a single one of us that has escaped this. From the first moment that we were born, we felt it, and we have carried it with us to wherever you are at today. This is an enemy. This is a, 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 an attack that targets you directly. It's this invisible enemy that sits and waits until you're most vulnerable, until you're ready to move, and then it cuts your legs out from underneath you the second you give it permission. Today, the enemy I want to talk about is fear. And so what I want to do today is I want to equip you and, and get you ready to be able to tackle fear head on. 
to be able to no longer let it stop you from accomplishing this incredible life that God has for you. So tell you what, we're going to open up in some scripture. I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive right in. If you've got your Bible with me, go ahead and open up to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. And we'll be starting in verse 10. All right, so we're apparently going to be talking about the armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, when fear gets in your face, that you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to be able to stand. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for this morning. Lord, I thank you so much for every single person that has arrived here today. Father, we thank you for an incredible holiday uh, yesterday to be able to celebrate the love that you have poured into our life. And Father, I pray that today just continue to be an outpouring of that love. Dear Lord, today I just pray that before we leave these doors that we feel powerful. Lord, I pray that we feel strong. I pray that we feel protected, Father, and ready to do what you have called us to do. Father, I pray that today we leave fearless. Father, I pray uh, for every single person in this room, God, that you open their ears, you open their hearts to receive the word that you have. And Father, I pray for myself, Lord, I pray that you use me, you use my mouth, that it be your word, not mine, and that it makes sense. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, uh, if you don't know, there are some weird fears in the world, uh, including some that I have had. Uh, so the passage you just read regarding the armor of God is supposedly to help us just deal and address with fears and phobias. That's why the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration, penned that passage in Ephesians 6. Really? Uh, back when I was probably eight, nine years old, I was babysitting with my best friend. Her name was Katie Vaughn, and she had a little brother, and her mom left, and so we were in charge of babysitting. I don't know who leaves an eight and nine-year-old in charge of the little brother, because uh, we were not responsible at all back then. Uh, but we did it, and we were at her house, so she got to choose the movie that we watched while the kid ran around and got in all the cabinets. And so uh, she chose... Spice World, and, and I'm pretty sure that only uh, my adult audience is going to remember Spice World. Uh, this was a movie based around Spice Girls, the British pop group, um, and I am ashamed that I watched that movie from beginning to end, but I can tell you today, I do not remember a single part of it except for one. There is a part in this movie where the Spice Girls have to infiltrate this building, and they decide the best way to do it is to sneak in through the sewer... And to come up through the toilet. And to little Ross, this was the most traumatizing idea on the planet. For the next year, maybe 24, I was really frightened every single time that I went to the restroom that someone was about to come up while I was doing my business. And this was scary. I was so frightened of this. And I know it's irrational. I know it doesn't make sense. But I can remember it just being that much more nerve-wracking every single time. And it was awful. But I am not the only person 
that have had some weird fears. I want to play a game with you guys today. I'm going to put up some names of some fears behind me. And if you think you know what that is the fear of, go ahead and give me a shout. And I want to see if you could get it. Our first one today is going to be nomophobia. Any guesses? The idea of being broke. No, so this was this was my guess. It was like maybe it's the fear of not having fears. Like, oh, I got no mo phobia. That's cool. <laughs> but turns out, no. This is a fear that afflicts many of our teenagers, including myself. I am scared to death of this. This is the fear of not having cell service. <gasps> I know, I know. No mo phobia. Mm, yeah. So the armor of God's going to fix that. Yeah. Yeah. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil and nomophobia. Uh-huh. Doesn't fit, does it? Here's our next one. Uh, this is going to be fun to pronounce. We have Iraqi Boutrophobia. Any guess? No, it's not the fear of spiders. Any guesses? This is the fear of having peanut butter stuck to the roof of your mouth. You ever had that when you take that, it's, uh, 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 you can't get it out. When you are deathly afraid of that moment, you suffer that. Congratulations, now you know what the name is. And there's people go, oh, thank God. This is going to be fun. Uh, Mikey, this next one, oh boy. All right, so we have hippopotomonstrosis quipidaliophobia. Boom. Fear of long words, which apparently none of you have because none of you just screamed. And so that's good. That's one less fear for you. Here's another one. Weird one. Omphalophobia, which means the fear of belly buttons. Yeah. You would just prefer for everybody to just have no divot, no any, no Audi. Or, freak me out. This was a pretty easy one. Phobophobia. This is the fear of fears, which just seems like an awful circle to be in. You just are constantly scared of yourself. And then this next one that I believe that every single one of us probably suffers from, dentophobia, the fear of the dentist. I am frightened of the dentist. I, I, I'm frightened. Yeah, I'm frightened that this is not a biblical sermon at all, and it doesn't even fit the context of the text that he read. Of going to the dentist, I'm scared of what the dentist is going to tell me. It's usually where that fear is located. Well, how about how about these fears? How about chronophobia? I think a lot of us deal with chronophobia. This is the fear of time passing. Every once in a while comes your birthday, and you begin to see the candles stack up, and all of a sudden chronophobia begins to kick in. Man, where did the time go? Maybe you're a senior in high school that's coming up on finals and you realize that you haven't listened to anything and all of a sudden chronophobia kicks in. You're just like, I just need seven more months and I only have three weeks. Maybe it's when you look at your five-year plan and you realize you're four years into it and you're not even close. And that fear of time passing begins to kick in. I'm running out of time. What about decidophobia? This is a fear of making decisions. Anybody else get stressed when you have to make a big decision? Anybody else get to the point where you're so scared that you just don't make the decision? You decide to take a nap instead? Because you don't want to make the wrong one. And that's scary. And then there's these big fears that don't even have names. What about the fear of rejection? That I think every single one of us at some point in time has dealt with. Especially in high school. Prom season's coming around. 
All of a sudden, that fear of rejection gets real strong. That moment that you proposed, maybe that moment you asked the girl on the first date, that fear of rejection kicked in. What about the first time that you stood up in front of an audience for something and you were so scared they were going to reject you? What about the fear of failure? Yeah, so the you know the armor of God is going to you know just be the thing that overcomes that you know. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against you know phobias and the authorities, against the cosmic phobias and the present phobias against the spiritual forces of phobias in the heavenly places. You know. Hmm. What about the fear of death? That one's frightening. And, and I think that there's, when I went and I looked online, I said, there's so many fears. There's a fear for everything out there. And fear only exists for one purpose, and that is to keep us from moving forward. If your fear is the fear of, of having peanut butter stuck on the roof of your mouth, then, then it keeps you from ever eating a PB&J. And I feel sorry for you. And if you have the fear of death, it keeps you from moving forward into some of the more exciting areas of your life. I have only felt the fear of death one time, and it was when I was skydiving. And I am so glad that I faced that fear. That was so exciting. And it was a step. I mean, I really did have to move forward in faith off of that airplane. But that fear immediately kicked in to say, you shouldn't do this. Stay where you are. And that's what fear wants to do. Fear wants to stop you in your tracks. It wants to shut you up. And make you dive back under the covers where it's safe and where it's comfortable. And that is not of God. I don't know if you know this, but God did not call us to a safe, comfortable life. There is a reason why when you look at all of the most powerful men and women in the Bible, a lot of times they end up having to spend time in prayer saying, God, I need your help. God, please give me strength. God, please help me with my fear. There's a lot of time, a lot of reasons that you see at the end of their life, they didn't exactly die in their sleep peacefully. It's because God was calling them out to do something greater, to do something exciting. And the fear was the first enemy that they ran into. In 2 Timothy 1.7, it tells us this. For God did not give us a spirit of fear. Yeah, um, 2 Timothy 1.7, huh? Yeah, let's put that one in context and see what that's referring to. 2 Timothy 1.7, for God did not give us a spirit of fear. Well, okay. Well, fear of what? What kind of spirit of fear are we talking about here? Well, let's take a look at the context. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I'm reminded, I remind you to fan in the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore... Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Yeah, so the, the therefore, so God didn't give us a spirit of fear, therefore, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Go and preach the gospel and suffer, share in Christ's sufferings. We continue. 
Fear is not of him. It says instead that he gave us power, he gave us love, and he gave us a sound mind. Those are the things of God. And so what we want to do today is we want to... Yeah, you're, you're taking that passage out of context from a greeting in a biblical text, in biblical letter, and you're, pay, you're not paying attention to what then is transpiring in this text. Seems to be our theme today, you know what I mean? To figure out how do we get rid of the fear in our life and how do we protect ourselves so that we never have this thing come back again. To move forward in faith... You have to get rid of all the things that are not of God and instead focus on him. So how do we defend ourselves against this fear? In Ephesians 6, which we read a second ago, we're going to skip forward a little bit into verse 19. And we see Paul is about to step forward into faith in an area of his life. And so he writes the church of Ephesus and he says in verse 19, pray also for me. That whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Paul is in a place where he knows he is about to go out. He's about to preach. He's about to do something that would scare a lot of people. And so he even asked his friends, he goes, hey, guys, can you pray for me that I be fearless? That any nerves that come in, that any fear that comes in, that fear of rejection, that fear of messing up, that fear of failure. Will you do me a favor? Will you pray that this be taken from me? Yeah, back in Paul's day, uh, preaching the gospel could get you stoned and killed. And it ultimately ended up in his death. You know what I mean? And what I love about Paul is the fact that he's very real. Not only does Paul pray for things that he needs, he then teaches others how to deal with that same need. It's really awesome that way. He's a great teacher. And so as he knows that fear is about to be a big issue and he sends this letter to the church, he gives them some advice before he signs out and and asks for prayer. And what he says is, if you're going to deal with prayer, I got two words for you. Armor up. Gear up. Get ready. Many people, they don't know that they've lost the battle to fear until the moment is gone. Until they're looking back and they realize, man, I I lost that one. I missed it. It was too late. The opportunity has passed. And most of the time, it's because we were just trying to mind our own business. We were just trying to keep it safe, pay fear, no mind. Maybe if, you know, if I don't see it, it doesn't see me kind of thing. But the thing is, fear works even if we are not working against it. It is always ready. And so because of this, because fear is always ready to strike, we must be militant in our fight against fear. That's right. And just like in any militant fight, if you're about to head out onto the battlefield, the first thing you got to do is you got to gear up. So church, get ready. Today, we're going back to Sunday school and we are going to talk about the armor of God. If you are still in Ephesians 6, start... Yeah, because the armor of God is all about overcoming, you know, phobias and fears in your life. Starting in verse 10, I want to read this to you. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so when when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. And here's how. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, 
with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in all occasions. And so this is what Paul tells us. Fear's coming. It's coming. Are you ready? Gear up. Get out your belt. This is the first thing he says. This is yeah, Paul's saying fear's coming. Yeah, that's not the context of Ephesians 6. Ay, ay, ay. It's like, again, you know, so much of biblical discernment is context, 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 and a little bit of reading comprehension. Yeah, Ephesians 6. I'll start at verse 1, and you cannot understand this portion of Ephesians without understanding that the, Paul opens up the letter preaching the gospel, telling and reminding us that we are saved by grace through faith as a gift from God, not by works, so that anyone should boast. And then there's the therefore. So the active and passive righteousness is in play here. Our passive righteousness received from Christ as a gift, our right standing secured by Christ for us, and then how that plays out in our lives. And then here's, you know, we're we're in that section, uh, Ephesians 6, where this is playing out in our lives. Oh, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This isn't about fear. This is about standing against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Yeah, see, the problem is is that he thinks because Paul's saying, you know, and pray for me that I might be bold, as that somehow the armor of God really has to do with about overcoming the fears and phobias in your life, and it's not. The first thing he tackles is the belt of truth, which is a little weird. Out of all of the things, why does he start 
with the belt. I mean, it, it would make sense to start with the helmet of salvation, right? Salvation is your first step, right? It's when you get saved. That's kind of the, the entry ground. That's when you first put your feet on. That's when you first start your new walk, but he doesn't start there. What about the sword? Put a sword in my hand first. If I'm going to go fight, give me a sword. And Paul says, okay, you're, you ready? You ready to go out and fight fear? Are you ready? Because it's a big one and it's tough and it's scary. Are you ready? Okay, get your belt. Yeah, you ready to fight fear? That's not what the armor of God is about. I mean, this is unbelievable. Really? <laughs> this? He has props. The importance of the belt of truth cannot be overstated. Truth is so important in our fight against fear. It is our base on which we build everything else. If you do not have truth sitting at your core, if you do not surround yourself in truth, well, then everything else falls apart. The truth keeps us secure in God, and it makes every single other piece of equipment effective. You could use every other piece. You could put all of it on, but if you don't have your belt holding it together, it will literally fall apart. This is the way that armor works. You can put on the most fancy silver covered in metal breastplate. You can have greaves that are bulletproof. You can be wearing a helmet that can protect you from everything. But if you literally did not have your belt that cinched everything together, it would fall apart. It would be loose. You would end up with all of these gaps in your armor for, for the enemy to be able to sneak through, for an arrow to be able to get through, for fear to be able to get through. And so the first thing he tells us is put on your belt. And it's not just with armor. I think a lot of us realize that we can go through all the motions. We can get saved. We can search for peace. We can put ourselves in a position to step out in faith. But if we aren't grounded in truth, well, then all that begins to fall apart in fear. Yeah, then you know this whole sermon falls apart because it's not actually based on exegetical truth. Begins to seep in. You see, truth is concrete. Yes. It's definite. It's solid. Fear is doubtful, curious even. Uh, John 17, 17 tells us this, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. This is true. The word of God is truth. Yes, this is an important thing. But notice the context. Oh, you need the truth in order to, you know, overcome the fears and phobias in your life. When we trust the words that come out of God's mouth as absolute truth, everything else in our life begins to fall into place. And there's going to be no room for fear. I mean, look at Adam and Eve. Going back to the first story, going back to the beginning with Genesis. You see what happens in, in, in Genesis 2.17 as God has built a life for Adam. And he comes to him and he says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. This is the word straight from God's mouth. The truth. This is what is real. This is what is concrete. This is what, Adam, you can build your life on. I have given you all of this. Don't touch that, but I've given you all of this. This is the truth. And so what happens is in the next chapter, time has passed, and all of a sudden they are not centered on this 
truth. They do not have it wrapped around them. And all it takes is for one voice to come along and say, what? You're like retelling the story of the garden, like adding your own details that are not in the text? Are you sure? And they begin to doubt the very word of God. They begin to doubt the very foundation that they were built on with three words. Are you sure? And this happens to every single one of us. That same voice is still sitting in the back of our heads constantly whenever we hear the truth. Maybe you come in, you hear this great message. Pastor Nate was just on fire that morning and you leave and you you hit that next step. You checkmarked it three times and you're ready. You're going to go home and you're going to tell every single person that you know about God. Because it says in his word, it says in Isaiah 55, 11, that his word does not return void. And so that means that that's truth. And so you know that and you are standing on that truth. You're like, I'm going to go tell people the word of God because the word of God says that it will then come back to me. And that's going to be great. And I can do this. because That's the truth. And I'm standing on it. And yeah. So the reason you're going to do that is for yourself, not really for your neighbor, but for you. Right. Got it. Yes. And then all of a sudden, are you sure? This kicks in. We tell ourselves, man, if I just, if I go and I speak the word of God to people, it's going to change their lives. It's going to have an effect because God said so. But are you sure? But what happens if it doesn't? What happens if, if they don't listen? What happens if they think I'm weird? What if I don't say it right? What if I, but God said, but are you sure? And we begin to doubt. We begin to have confusion because we aren't centered in that truth. We begin to, maybe it's a, a moment where God spoke to you and he starts calling you into something else. And you say, man, I, I know I'm, I'm comfy at this job. I got my life set and I make a good bit of money and this is great. But man, I was praying the other day and I felt God speak to my heart. And he told me that it's time for me to step out into the mission field. Man, he told me to come help out with this organization. Man, he told me to come step into this area of my life. And I know it's not going to be as much money, but it's okay because if God told me to do it, then God's going to provide. But are you sure? Well, man, what if I can't? What if I can't make rent? What if I can't feed my kids? What if I, what if I, no, but God told me, he told, it was his word and it's true. But are you sure? Unless you can wrap yourself in truth, the simple fear of, are you sure? Will be the number one thing that cripples you every single time you try and step forward in faith. But when you're wrapped in truth, this is awesome. You can answer, are you sure? Every single time with, heck yes, I'm sure. Because I have Jesus. And in John 14, 6, it says that Jesus is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And so if I've got him and I've got this truth and he's got this life for me, I know that I'm good. Bring it on, heck yes. So you're going to step forward in fearless faith when, you know, God speaks things into your hearts and stuff like that. Because you've surrounded and, you know, saturated yourself in truth. The, the sad part about this is there's a kind of a half truth to this, but that's the problem. It's really a half truth. Remember, a half truth is still a whole lie. We continue. I am sure. And that's where we want to get when we are fearless because we are wrapped in his truth. And once we have that, then we can begin to move on. And the next thing that Paul tells us is to put on the breastplate of righteousness. 
Righteousness protects us from a very specific fear. And this is the fear of condemnation. I don't know if you know this, but a breastplate, its main function, other than just being really stylish. Okay, whose condemnation? God's? Is to protect your heart. This is its main function. To keep the most vital organ for life protected. And righteousness does the exact same thing. It protects our heart. Our heart is safe when it is rested and when it is protected by God's righteousness and by God's grace and not our own. And I want to make one point. Not a bad point. You know, I'll give him a prop for that. Yeah, so if you're talking about salvation by grace alone through faith alone, sure. Point very clear about this. It says to put on God's righteousness. It says to put on God's armor, not ours. It says to go and put on God's armor. It doesn't say go make your armor with this stuff and put it on and get out there. It says, no, take these things from God. Take God's truth. Take God's righteousness and put it on. Because what happens is fear of condemnation, when we are not strapped in God's righteousness, leads to one thing, self-righteousness. Or as we more commonly say it, works. When you are not protected by the righteousness of God, what's going to happen is you are going to try harder and harder and you are going to worry more and more to try and protect yourself by what you can do and not what he has already done. And this fear will lead you to a place of stress and worry and really vulnerability. The the issue here, although I I do like the grace theme in here, is that that's not exactly what the breastplate of righteousness is for. I mean, I, I'm glad he's talking about grace and talking against self righteousness. Good thing to be doing. <laughs> he's coming out of left field to do it. And see, you know, you've got a chink in your breastplate when you begin to feel that way. When you begin to feel that stress, when you begin to feel that worry kick in. Righteousness, on the other hand, that's kind of like strapping Jesus onto our front. If you can just put him right here. Because the fear of condemnation is this idea that God's going to look at you and you didn't quite match up. That you didn't quite make it. That you weren't quite good enough. True. But when you strap on God's righteousness, it's like just putting Jesus right in front of you. Like you're just piggybacking on him. (laughs) The problem is, is that in the context of the armor of God, you're making Jesus sound like he's a human shield. Oh, man. That's not quite, not quite right. It it almost works. But, ah. Uh, oh, man. The reason why it almost works is because he's, kind of in the right ballpark he's sort of do it but he approached this thing with all about overcoming fears and phobias and as a result of it the framework he set up the problem that's being solved in this sermon is isn't exactly right oh man so, so I, I still have to give him credit i'm glad he's talking about grace i Jesus, the human shield. Oh, boy. And so every single time that God comes to look at you, instead of seeing you, he sees his son who is perfect 
Again, true. And he says, good job. Well done. And you've got nothing to fear. That's a good place to be. So when you put on God's righteousness and when you strap that on, when you know that God is seeing his son instead of you and you don't have to work so hard, what happens next is you gain an abundance of peace. And it's so funny because I could have got some like armored boots or something. But I think it's important to know that peace is so simple. Peace isn't, it's not this extravagant thing. It's not this fancy thing. It's why Paul refers to it as sandals. That it's just something you stand on. It's just something that you walk in. Once we stand in peace, we have the ability to walk wherever God leads us. Mm -hmm. Except for the text is talking about standing firm. And even, it says this in in Psalms 23, even though I walk through the valley of death, I fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They bring me peace even in my worst situation when we can stand. Yeah, so you avoid what the text is saying. Again, not paying attention to the text itself. And again, the problem is he started with this problem and searched for a, a text to fit the solution, you know, into the problem. And the text itself is talking about standing firm, you know, not walking. Yeah, so therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened, standing, not walking. Stand on God's peace. We can be in the scariest place. We can be in the darkest valley. But it says, I'm not going to fear anything. Why? Because I got the truth wrapped around me. I got Jesus strapped to my front. And I am walking on peace. Bring it on. I got nothing to worry about. Uh, This peace does not depend on your situation. I remember uh, the story of, of, of Jesus. Yeah, the other thing is, is that it says, you know, as shoes or sandals uh, for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. They're not just shoes of peace. It's the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Jesus and Peter, when they're out on the, on the, on the lake, when it's storming and Jesus is walking on water, by the way, sandals of peace, let you walk on water. So that's pretty cool. (laughs) no. No, because nowhere are we told to walk on water. Sandals of peace do not. (laughs) Okay, I think I'm going to spontaneously combust. I mean, this is ridiculous now. I mean, if you have a text in front of you, how can you be doing this? (laughs) And Jesus is walking out. And and Peter sees him and he has this moment to take this step of faith, to move forward in faith. And it's so... Yet the reason why Peter walked on the water is because he doubted. The text says, if it's really you, Jesus, then tell me to come out to you. So it wasn't him stepping out in faith. It was him having doubts that led to him starting to walk on the water and then sink ultimately cool how he does this because peter locks eyes with jesus and he steps off and what was liquid he can now stand on which i can just imagine is just like the craziest thing in the world and it's because he has so much peace looking at jesus but what's so important to notice is jesus did not make the storm stop 
don't know if you remember this, but, but there was a storm happening. There were waves everywhere. The water was going crazy. And when we have the peace of God, it doesn't mean that he's going to bring, bring peace to the water. It means he's going to bring peace to you. Yeah, the, uh, the story of Peter walking on the water has nothing to do with the armor of God. It's not an actual cross reference. And so it's not like Jesus just made a piece of calm water right where Peter stepped. Peter was able to do the impossible because he had faith. When you don't stand on faith, when you don't stand in peace, you might miss an opportunity. Did you miss the part about Peter sinking? I remember... It always makes me laugh when I say this. It's kind of insulting. So I used to play football. (laughs) I was not good. I I played for three years, and and I I got into it not because, obviously, I'm not very big. The cool kids did it, and I wanted to be liked, and I wanted the girls to see me, and I wanted to be part of the team. And so in middle school, I joined, and I jumped around from position to position. Coach was trying to figure out what the heck to do with me because I'm not very big. And I'm, I'm pretty quick in a straight line, but I got the turning radius of a tank. And for some reason, they ended up putting me as a defensive linebacker, and I have no idea why. Because I can't catch, barely. I can't tackle. I just kind of get lit up on the field, which is why they called me Christmas tree. Because every single time I stepped out on the field, I got lit up. I can't keep up with anyone. And so what would happen was my coach, what a, what a lovely man he was to try and give me a chance would put me in in the fourth quarter when we were ahead by a margin. It's kind of like, okay, Ross can't mess this up. Let's go ahead. Throw the dog a bone. Get him in there. And I'll never forget my favorite game that we played. It was at Langham Creek, and it was right in the middle of, incidentally, a storm. It was pouring down rain. It was my favorite game because the field was super muddy. So every time you tackled someone, you would slide like 15 yards. And so it was really fun. And you could tell who all the good players were because our jerseys were maroon and white. And so all the good players, their jerseys were maroon and brown because of all the mud. And me and all the other whitewashed guys on the bench were just kind of like cheering. And we were losing pretty badly. I don't know why I remember this, though. I remember Coach coming along the, the sideline and saying, we got to get some fresh legs out there. Defense was up. Who wants to go? And I, I had this thought, right? All of a sudden, Rudy plays in my head. <laughs> And I'm like, I can be Rudy. And I got so excited for just a second. And I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out there. And I'm going to catch an interception. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run to the touchdown. And I'm going to do it three times so we get three points. Because that's how football works, right? And so I got really excited about it. And coach is walking down and, and he's looking at everybody. And all of a sudden, I did not have peace. What if I mess up? No, someone else is probably better at this. And I, well, it probably shouldn't be me. And I remember his coach was getting closer and closer and he's looking. I mean, he's making eye contact. And he had these piercing blue eyes and they were frightening. And so he's getting closer to me. And I, I, it was right before he looked and I had made the decision, not me. And I looked down. So when he looked at me, I wasn't looking back at him. And he moved on. And he went down the line and and I was sitting there, and I, I remember thinking, wait, no, what am I doing? I, we're losing. What, what, what is there to lose? Okay. And so I got up, and, and it was after he had passed. I walked over. I'm like, Coach, if you still want someone, I'll go out there. And he goes, dude, you missed it, man. I asked, where were you? It's too late. And I went back, and I knelt in the mud, and I just felt awful. 
And it's because I got scared. I didn't have peace about myself. I didn't have peace about the situation. I wasn't at a point where I could stand on the water. I was too busy looking at the situation. I was too busy looking at me. And I missed my opportunity of joining the NFL. No, I'm joking. (laughs) And so the next thing that, that Paul tells us is once you get strapped up in truth, once you put your righteousness on, once you are seated in peace, is he says, pick up the shield of faith. I feel like Captain America. That's fun. And what the shield of faith deals with is the fear of the unknown. See, all the other stuff. Uh, No, no, no. The shield of faith does not have anything to do with the unknown. Faith in whom, for what, is the right question. Faith in Jesus to overcome the fear of the unknown? No, I don't think so. It's, it's stuff you just kind of put on. It's stuff that you're armored with. It's stuff that's going to protect you. But now it's time to start moving. Now it's time for action. Everything else, it can kind of stand on its own. You just kind of put on it, just kind of lays there. But a shield, it's got to be wielded. It's got to be picked up. And so does faith. To, to, to really step out in faith, you have to start doing something. That's right. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this. Faith is the confidence that what I hope for will actually happen. And it gives us assurance about things we cannot see. Uh, what, what translation are you reading? <sighs> I'm not going to make it through this sermon. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, The conviction or certainty of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11.6 says, yeah, this is not good. Faith directly deals with this fear of the unknown, of not knowing what comes next. Uh, No, um, yeah, see, that's not true. If faith is the assurance of things hoped for, then we know what's coming next. But we don't see it now. We believe it's coming because God has said so in his word, and we believe his word by faith. It's the conviction of things not seen. Why are they not seen? Because they're promises regarding our right standing before God, uh, eternal life and salvation, and you know things like that. Are they here yet? No, can't see them. But how do we know they're, they're there? We believe these things by faith. It's not fear of the unknown. It's actually certainty of the things promised that are known. See, we talked about truth, and truth is concrete. We know truth because God said the things. But what about the things that we don't know? Because God did not tell me, Ross, you will become the youth pastor that will change the world. (laughs) This is not in Scripture. I can't go and read that and be like, okay, this is truth. I can see it. It's his word. 
So, awesome, I can just walk in that. No, instead, it's this kind of unknown territory that I, I, that I feel like God called me to, but he didn't exactly give me a bunch of directions here. Yeah, this has nothing to do with the shield of faith or anything to do with biblical faith. And so, what do I do? What do I stand on? Faith is the confidence that what I hope for is actually going to happen. See, truth comes from knowing God's word. Faith comes from knowing God's character. Knowing that he's going to provide. Knowing that he's going to take care of you. Knowing that if he puts something in your heart, that he's going to bring you through it. Faith comes down to not only believing in his word, but believing that he loves you enough to pour out his strength and to pour out his power into you and that it lives inside of you. The shield will protect you from the unknown. Which this scripture, which is not at all what the shield of faith is about. Sure, refers to his fiery arrows. That every single time that you step out and you have that moment of what if, you put your shield up. Uh, no, 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 and just let it bounce off this, and you just keep moving forward in faith that God will take care of everything else. It doesn't say that it's going to make the arrows go away. It just says that it's going to block them. If you have faith. The next thing, second to last, that Paul tells us to put on is our helmet of salvation. And what the helmet of salvation does is it protects you from the fear of your past. Ebenezer Scrooge could have used a helmet of salvation. If any of you felt the ghost of your past come in and start talking to you, to be honest, this is what I dealt with sitting on that sideline on that football field. Man, I should go out there. I can do this. But remember all those times you dropped that ball? Remember all that time that you tried to tackle that guy and it was just like a wall and you just ragdolled? And all those moments came in. And your old high school football stories have nothing to do with this text. Like, at all. I was scared of my past repeating itself. And the fear of the past is something that plagues all of us. Every single failure we've ever had. Every single thing about the person that we were before. But that's what's great about salvation. Salvation wipes that slate clean. When your mind is constantly on salvation, the idea of being scared of who we were is no longer an issue because that person no longer exists. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, such an incredible verse, it says this, if anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. The, which is true. The old, your past, all your mistakes, all of your failures, all of that is Gone sins, and yes, that's true. Amen. And the new is here. And so when you put this helmet on and all that you see is salvation, you don't worry about who you were. You don't worry about the mistakes you've made. You don't worry about your past sins because all you see is from the moment that God came in and saved you onward. Okay. That that sounds like a good deal, but what about the sins I've committed from the moment of salvation onward? Do do I need to worry about those? (laughs) This is so convoluted. Into a new path, into moving forward 
in fearlessness and forward in faith. When all you see is salvation, you don't worry about who you were. You worry about who you are. Henry Ford said it uh, this way, that when you always do what you Based on what he's saying then, you know, you listen, you know, hey, you're apparently not a sinner anymore. You know, so from the moment of salvation on, you just focus on who you are. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly right. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, John writes to Christians. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We continue to live daily in repentance. You've always done, you always get what you've always got. God has called you into something new. You are no longer doing what you've always done. That past sin, that past repeat. When you want to get out from your situation, when you want to get something new, focus on your salvation because everything is made new in that. And the last thing is the sword, which the Bible refers to as the word of God. And this thing is not used for defense. This thing is not used just to cower behind and to protect ourselves. This thing is used to take the fight to fear. When you have the word of God, now it's time to go. You're going to use the sword of the armor of God to combat fear. Oh yeah. Cause you know, fear is that mortal enemy of Christianity, you know? Oh, it, in fact, fear is way worse than the devil, man. I mean, whew, yeah. Uh, this, uh, time to go on the offense. Now it's time to start moving forward. See, when, you, when all you've done is you've equipped yourself with all of this, all you've done is become a really heavily armored moving target. But now it's time to fight back against every single fear that you've ever had. And I'll tell you this, nobody is scared when they're holding a sword in their hands. There's something about it. There's something about power, knowing that you can fight back that just fills you with confidence. I, I, I tell Jess all the time that if anyone ever sneaks into my house, I don't personally own a gun, not because of any preference, just because I don't have one. But I tell her that if anyone ever came into our house, I'd grab this thing. This thing hangs on my wall. Uh-huh. I'm in pain. I am, I am being tortured by this sermon. I really am. And that guy'd probably go turn himself in. He'd probably go show up to the police office and be like, I, I'm sorry, I've been stealing from people, but I'm done. Why? I don't know. Some dude in a Superman onesie and a sword came running at me, and I'm, <laughs> I'm giving up this life. This is frightening. There is something about holding a sword that you aren't scared of anything. And when you hold the word of God, when you have it in your mind, then you will not fear anything. And it's, Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, just what, so all I need to do is like grab a Bible and, you know, feel its leathery goodness in my hands and I won't feel nothing, fear nothing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Awesome. With the word of God, you can step into any situation ready to cut down the attacks of fear without missing a beat. (laughs) The attacks of fear. (laughs) Yeah, who knew that was our mortal enemy? I mean... (sighs) 
When you know the promises that he's given you, when you know the power that he has given you, when you know the salvation that he has provided for you, you just cut every fear that comes in in half. But I don't know what's going to happen. That fear of unknown comes, but I know that God works everything for my good. Get out of my way. When something comes at you and says, but I'm afraid that when God looks at me, I'm not going to be good enough. Well, I know that God was, or Jesus was perfect and he died for all that. So get out of my way. I cut this fear in half. Hebrews 4.12 says this. The word of God is alive and powerful. It is. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword cutting between soul and spirit. This is true. I mean, amen. Between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thought and desires. The word of God is sharp. Indeed it is. This is most certainly true. It's not just something to bluntly attack with this thing's for precision this thing's ready for every single situation that you will ever run into whereas before we were protected from fear now we can remove it from our lives the more in scripture that we are the more that we can cut away every attempt to slow us down there it is again Mm, the more we're in God's, we can cut down every attempt that's trying to slow me down. The attacks of fear. Yes, that's our mortal enemy, fear. Jesus, I don't know if you knew this, but Jesus was an expert swordsman. Jesus was the Highlander, right? There can only be one. It was him. I would agree with the metaphor. I True, it's true. And we know this because of what happens in Matthew 4, verse 3 through 10. Yep, we do. Yeah, Jesus dueling to the death with the devil and, you know, being tempted in the wilderness. I'm with you there, dude. Because he cut Satan down with the sword of God. Starting in verse 1, it says this. Then Jesus was led into the spirit, led by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Yeah, notice it says he wasn't led into the wilderness to be tempted by our mortal enemy, fear. Yes, fear. <laughs> I am fear. Fear me. <laughs> no, it was be tempted by the devil. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And I can promise you that Jesus dealt with fear, too. Probably. <laughs> really, you can promise us that Jesus dealt with fear, too, huh? Um, could you show us those passages where Jesus dealt with fear? I mean, this is not one of them. He didn't seem to be fearful of the devil at all. Right now, the fear of starving. It's been 40 days. Oh, yeah. Just going to throw that. The fear of starving. Uh-huh. But Jesus answered with the word of God. He answers. He pulls out. He unsheaths his sword. So apparently, who knew? There was a, It wasn't just the devil attacking Jesus. It was fear as well. This was a, well, a dual attack. But, you know, clearly the more important one attacking was fear. Yeah. And says, it is written that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. Was Jesus suffering from fear of heights, you know, while up there? For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift up. Lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And here comes Jesus ready to parry with it yet again with his sword. Jesus answered him. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him the kingdom of the world in all of its splendor. Did Jesus have kingdophobia? All of this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. And with this final blow, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus knew how to wield his sword. Yes, he did. I agree here, but he wasn't fighting fear. And he was fighting the devil. And the armor of God passage in Ephesians 6 mentions not fear, but the devil. Jesus had his scripture ready. He knew the word of God and he was ready no matter what came at him to stop him from moving forward into this life that God had called him to do. Yeah, it wasn't just whatever came up in life. It's the temptations of the devil there, dude. That he had the word of God ready to be able to cut that worry down, to be able to cut that temptation down. Worry down. Where did it say Jesus cut the, the worry down? He was ready. He was armed. And so I'm going to close with this. I'm glad we're at the end. How do we put on this armor? We, we know what each of the pieces are. We've seen it. We, we understand it. But how do we put it on to make sure that we are equipped every single day with every one of these things? Well, the sword is easy. The sword is the word of God. So get in your word. Start memorizing scripture. When you have the word of God, you have your sword. Our salvation is found in the gospel. Every single time that you are not seeing anything but your salvation. Cue sappy music. You can barely hear it, but that's an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descending on the audience. Anytime that you forget that moment where God came in and saved you, go hop into the gospel. Go open this thing up and read about what Jesus did for you, and you will put this helmet right back on. Faith. If you need faith, if you need to, to pick up your shield, but you don't know how, Open up and start reading about the powers and the miracles that God has done. And know where to put your faith in. Righteousness. To get righteousness, all you have to do is draw closer to Christ and live his way, not yours, by emulating what he did in here. Righteousness and peace will both come from every single word written in here. And how do you submit yourself in the truth? Have it memorized. Take these verses every week. Make it a point. And there's nothing wrong with memorizing verses. But it, yeah, the, the pretense here is all off. Put them on your visor, in your car. So that you can overcome fear, you know. Go home and read it 17 times before you go to bed. But start taking these scriptures and putting them into your head. So that way that you can be equipped with every single second, with every single situation that comes along, even if you don't have your Bible on you, that you are ready, that you've got the word in here. And you know where your truth lies. You know where your faith is. 
Get inside of this thing every single day and you will not worry about your armor falling apart. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this. All scripture is God-breathed and useful. It is. This is true. Check this out for all this stuff. For teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Which means you need to handle it rightly. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, for every move forward, for every step of faith. The more you are in this, the more you will be ready. So if I'm going to tell you one thing today, it's to get in your word. Don't wait for Sunday. Don't wait for growth group. Don't wait for anybody else. No one's going to strap this armor on to you. You got to do it yourself. My final statement today is this. God has given us all these things to fight fear because he loves us. <laughs> God is not for fighting fear. <sighs> the text says it's to withstand the fiery darts of the evil one, you know? Our original verse that we spoke, 2 Timothy 2, 7 says he did not give us a spirit of fear. He gave us all of this. He gave us power. He gave us armor. He gave us swords. He gave us power to be able to fight back. He gave us a sound mind. You know what that means to have a sound mind? It means to be fearless. No, that's not what that means. He gave us a spirit of love. And check this out. Check this out. Oh, this is so good. Mikey, put this up. John, 1 John 4, 8. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. Oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I, again, the problem was he started with the problem first and then decided to go and find a passage to shoehorn in as the solution. And he didn't rightly handle the text as if somehow the whole armor of God's all about you overcoming fear. And Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Who knew? It was a twin attack. The, the devil... And fear were attacking Jesus at the same time. I did not know that he was taking on two opponents at the same time. But, I mean, wow. Way to go, Jesus. And the whole thing is just a mess. You need to rightly handle God's word, pay attention to the details, and exegete it carefully if you're going to be preacher and teacher in Christ's church. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, the name there, at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.